What I get to do at Focus on the Family is I'm a, just a research nerd. I may not look like a nerd, but I am. I'm a research nerd. And I just get to, to read all kinds of academic studies and publications and things like that on issues of family formation. What is it that makes the family? And in the last 15 years, really, I've spent a lot of time on the issue of gender. Because gender, the nature of male and female, really matters. I don't know if you can think back to your biology courses, but there's something that happens magically when men and women come together in marriage, that they start to flower and generations grow. And there is something significant about the maleness and the femaleness there of that dynamic. So thinking and knowing about that, it's important that we know what is the nature of male and female. And that that is being attacked today. And so in my work of going out into the culture, and largely I don't get to speak to churches that often. I'm usually speaking to college campuses and kind of more hostile audiences, although I've just started with you. I don't know if you're going to be hostile or not. We will see. But if it does turn hostile, I can handle it. I'm used to that. Um, speaking on the issue of gender, homosexuality, things like that, and bringing truth to it, but truth with a gracious heart. And I want to start out with two verses. One is, and I want to lay this foundation, and it's going to be our theme for tonight. If you will look, just open the first page of your Bible to Genesis. That is, if you have the Old Testament and New Testament. Genesis 1, 28 and 27. And these two verses are so substantial, so significant about what one God is but also who we are as human beings. And it starts in verse chapter 1, Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man. First of all, he is speaking plurally. Let us. Not just one singular God, God the Father sitting alone in heaven, but let us. Who do you think those people are? Is it just two? It's three, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity is saying in their communion, and, and I don't want to be disrespectful in this, but it's, it's as if maybe we might be sitting around a table after dinner or sitting around Starbucks having coffee, and you say, you know, Isabel, let us go to Hawaii in... June, early June. I mean, you're stating and in the communion with other people, you're talking about what you may do and the enjoyment of that. God the Father, God the Holy Son, God the Holy Spirit says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, first of all, we don't know when we hear that what man is. We're on this side of the story, right? But as God says that, we're like, okay, what is this thing called man that is, as God says, going to be made in our image, the image of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and our likeness? 
Think about that, okay? If we don't know what's coming next, we're going to think, you know, if we're all the rest of creation that has been created, we're going to say, wow, what's coming next? Okay, we have the beautiful mountains. We have, you know, the oceans. We have the Rocky Mountains where we live. We have the beautiful oceans here, the beautiful mountains that you have. We've seen all this, but now God is going to create something that is even better than all of us. It is something that bears his image and likeness. Okay, for all of us as parts of nature, we're just hushed, waiting to see what this thing is going to be that images God. Let us make man in our image. Let us make him look like us, be like us, be in our likeness. And then in verse 27, we get the answer as to what that is going to be. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. So, what is going to appear next? We can't understand it. We may even disagree with it. But God says, what I'm going to create, this thing called man, bears my image in the world. It's the only part of creation that does. And here's what he says it is. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Okay? So again, we're the rest of nature. You know, the mountains, the seas, the everything. And we see these two creatures. Boom! Male and female. It's those things that are physical representations, if you will, of the invisible God. Amazing. Okay, so here's the question. How many of those things that God calls female do we have here this evening? Raise your hand. Go ahead. If you're not sure, ask the person next to you. They may know. How many of you are what God calls men? Raise your hand. Okay, now on college campuses, I ask a third question, and I get very different reactions. How many of you are neither of those two categories, man or woman? Raise your hand. Okay. On college campuses, I have people raise their hands. And I'm going to talk about that in just a little bit. But I want us to lay this foundation that these two things, man and woman, they're not just a development. They're not just a thing. They represent God. They are an icon, if you will, a statue or a photograph, in a sense, of God in the world. Now, I don't look like God. You don't look like God. God does not have a physical body, but God himself tells us that mysteriously, when you see a woman, she in some sense represents the image and nature of God. Same thing with the man. So I don't know if you're picking up on it, but when we see a man, when we see a woman, that's huge stuff. It's mysterious. It's divine. 
okay? Now bring it down to the work that I do, the things that we discuss with our friends, our family, people in our community, the issue of gender. What does it mean to be male and female, man and woman? Okay, that's the biblical answer. And Christianity takes a tremendously high view of men. We know that because Christianity is a very patriarchal, male-dominated faith. But it is the faith that takes the highest view of women. It really wasn't until Christianity came historically along that women were seen as people equal to men. It was the Christians coming up that gave women their rights. You think about in the world where women are treated well, they are historically Christian nations. Christianity values the sexes. Okay, now I want to give you from the New Testament another verse. This is about Jesus. And it's a little different, but it has to do with what we're talking about. Uh, 1 John, I'm sorry, John 1, first chapter of John, um, the Gospel of John, verse 14. And it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as the only son from the father. Jesus came down from heaven, dwelt among us. God became man and pitched his tent among us. And we have beheld his glory The glory as the only son from the father, full, that word right there, full of grace and truth. It is not way full of truth and pretty full of grace, or way full of grace and kind of true and, and kind of full of truth. Jesus exists in grace and truth. So when we deal with issues in the culture today, when we deal with individuals, we have to be like Jesus. And when we think about the issue of gender and homosexuality and things like that, we think, well, do we need to be more loving or do we need to be more truthful? What would Jesus do? He would be absolutely chock full, overflowing with grace holding nothing back, but also chock full, smashed down, flowing over of truth as well. That's where we have to live. And here's an important point. In, and I'm going to go into some details in a minute of just this issue within our culture. But how do we get the grace and the truth part right? It really comes down to this. We always, always always treat the person in front of us with grace. That person, however much they may be in our face or however much we think they're rebelling against God, remember, we are rebels against God every day. They are one of those males or females that bear the image of God, whether they recognize it or not. We treat the person in absolute grace. The other side is 
we treat the issue that is relative to the person, and in this issue, the issue of gender, homosexuality, sexual attraction, we always treat that issue in truth, never compromising, but nor do we ever compromise over here. And again, you think, okay, so which one is which? Well, they depend sometimes. Sometimes we want to be more gracious and kind and understanding to the person. Sometimes we have to just say, you know what? Sorry, this is what God says. I love you, but this is what God says. I wish I could rewrite it. There'd be a bunch of stuff in my own life sexually that I would want to rewrite, but God doesn't give us that luxury. We do that with our kids, right? I mean, there are times when like, okay, you did wrong. You know, you're not quite where, but let me love you. Let me hug you. And then other times, and it's not all that easy with parents sometimes, but other times you just have to go, no, you know, it's not going to happen. And so in terms of dealing with this issue, we think, well, you know, don't we have to be completely loving and embracing and, you know, not be judgmental? Well, yes, but no. Again, treat the person with grace. But that doesn't mean we have to approve of everything. There is nothing in life where we have a person who disagrees with us, and in order to love them and care for them and accept them as our friend, we have to accept everything about them. It just, I mean, there is no issue other than, unfortunately, this one where we're told, you, if you disagree with me, then you're not loving me. Again, that doesn't work in any other area of life. But nor does it say that, you know, we have to stand so strong on truth and be so rock solid and be so hard and constantly telling people where they're wrong. You know what? People know in their hearts where they are. Sometimes we have to speak the word of God and remind them, but you know what? Everybody standing before God and themselves in the mirror is a fallen, broken, rebellious person. And really, none of us are more fallen than another. So we see the individual who may be trying to defend as truth something that is untrue, and we stand firm pointing to what the truth is, but loving them. And I think that's an important balance is to say that friends that I have as I deal with this issue and I've developed a number of good friendships with people on the other side of this issue that I debate with, I will tell them if they ever get angry, you know, they're like, why are you judging me? Or, you know, why can't you just love me? My friendship with you over these three years, four years, 10 years, I hope that's the demonstration. Whether we agree with everything or not, I hope that's the demonstration that I love you, that your particular story is not keeping me from being your friend. And it's interesting when you share that, they're like, okay, that makes sense. You know what? Because of our differences, despite our differences, I am committed to you as my friend, as my neighbor, as my coworker. But I, you know, you don't have to agree with everything that I believe, and I don't have to agree with everything that you believe in order for us to be friends. Now, that kind of lays out the 
um, the biblical part of things, but I want to talk a little bit about just the issue itself, this issue of gender in our culture today. And I want to use this as a transition. Okay, how many of you who have paid the littlest bit of attention over the last couple of years would agree that, yes, gender, the understanding of what it is to be male and female are under attack today, or at least under significant disagreement and discussion. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. And sometimes we'll think, well, this is just the latest skirmish in the culture war. You know, the latest thing to bubble up, and next year it'll be something else, you know, Donald Trump, the election, this, that, the other, the Paris, you know, thing. Um, No, this is big because the gender issue speaks to not just what Satan attacked in the garden early on, which was the word of God. Male and female being attacked are the image of God being attacked. And now it's not the individuals necessarily that are doing, you know, the, that are the satanic attack. Satan does what Satan does and he's in many ways the puppet master of all of us, right? And he is using so many in the world thinking that it's just the next cultural debate or intellectual debate, but he knows what it's about, He knows that when he gets us to question the significance of male and female, what is being questioned? The very nature of God. Satan, as God's opponent, he is a good warrior. A good warrior goes for the jugular of the opponent, who is God. That is what Satan is doing. We have to understand that. Again, it's not the individuals that are demonic or satanic, but what God is, what Satan is doing there. The church needs to understand that. And that's why I and we at Focus on the Family and others are so dedicated to understanding this issue. And I want to just tell you a number of stories of the way this is manifesting itself and the way that it's causing confusion in the world today. First of all, we are told at so many corners and our young people are told that, well, this is the way that people are made. And God, you know, if God created them that way, how can he denounce that then? Because he cannot denounce what he made. We're born this way. And we hear that science tells us definitively that we know that people are born this way. Well, no. In this book, um, Loving My LGBT Neighbor, which um, Pastor Ron talked about, and I have copies of that um, later on for sale. But in here, um, the American Psychological Association, which is largely pretty pro-gay on most of the policies that they have, you can go online and look up what causes homosexuality, and they have a, a fact sheet on that. And let me read a little bit of the fact sheet, quote from it. There is no consensus among scientists, 
about the exact reasons that an individual develops a heterosexual, bisexual, gay, or lesbian orientation. Although much research has examined the possible genetic, hormonal, development, social, or cultural influences, they've studied a breadth of different influences that are influencing sexual orientation. No findings, no findings, absolute statement, no findings have emerged that permit scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor or factors. Many think that nature and nurture both play complex roles. Most people experience little or no sense of choice about their sexual orientation. Many think that nature and nurture play a role. Bottom line, the scientists just don't know. We just don't know. And why is that from our view as Christians? Because God, as making us as sexual beings, we're very complex. It's not just, well, you're this way or you're this way. No, we are very complex beings sexually. And so there is a bit of the developmental, the families that we've come from. There's a little bit of the way our bodies and our brains are wired as unique individuals. But there is no science whatsoever that says, you know, there is such thing as a gay person or a homosexual person or a lesbian person or a bisexual person just like an Asian person or a black person or an oriental person, okay? That is just simply not true. Now, the other big, big lie here that we have is, and in gender studies, and if any of your kids are going off to college and studying gender studies, you need to stop them right now, not because it's wrong, but you are just throwing your money away because as an academic discipline, it is just completely rooted in thin air. And I don't like to make just absolute definitive statements like that, but gender studies is a mess. And I'm gonna talk just a little bit about that. But one of the, you know, the, the if gender studies had 10 commandments, the first commandment would be that gender stud, or gender is fluid. There's male and female, and there's 100, more than 100 genders all in between, okay? And they also believe that, that any of you who present yourselves as either a man or a woman, present yourselves as a man or a woman because society has determined for you what a man should look like. And therefore, you play the role that society sets for you as what a man is. And the women act like women because of what society says women should look like. It's what they call the social construct nature of gender. Well, it's first of all just silly, and I'll explain why to you, is pretend we're in an anthropology class and our professor is going to send us somewhere. And I love out here in you know, Polynesia, because we have all these different islands out here that for the longest time have been separated from so many other cultures. 
okay? When we go to any of those islands that our anthropology professor is going to send us to, we land there. And think about this. If male and female are just cultural constructs, we would find some islands where we go, okay, there's a kind of person, and I don't know what that is. There's another kind of person, and I have no idea what that is. And there's a third and a fourth kind of person, and I, Professor, what are they? Okay? If they're not from the United States, if they're not from Europe, if they're not from the developed nations where the culture says, you will be male and you will be female and here's how they act, then we would expect to go to all these places and find all these different kinds of human beings. But if we go to any of these cultures, the men may dress differently, the women may dress differently, but even apart from body parts, we can tell there's a male essence and there's a female essence. The way that their bodies just carry themselves, the way that these two types of people, men and women, collect together and just relax together. Women do that differently and men do it differently. There are anthropologists who have gone to every populated area in the world and they have studied, they, some of these guys I've met, one of them is, and many of them are just absolute atheists, very opposed to Christianity. They are not traditional in any way, but they have gone to hundreds of different cultures and experienced and studied the nature of male and female, and what they find out is that there's an absolutely humanly universal male and female nature, that culture to culture, there are generally ways that males and females are, and they're different. And it's really fascinating. Another book that I'll have for sale is a book that I have, Secure, Secure Daughters, Confident Sons. And I've got a whole section in there of research from these secular anthropologists who talk about this, this universal and geographical continuity of male and female nature. If I can ask you, how much, how are we on time? Oh, three minutes, good. I gotta talk really, really fast. But what we see is that yes, everywhere we go, there is this thing called male and female that really does make a difference. And so when I ask on college campuses, how many of you do not fit in either the male or the female, I will have people raise their hands. Now, if you, as interesting, curious people, you have somebody present themselves to you who says they're neither male or female, what do you do? You say, meet me afterwards. I want to hear your story because I've never met anybody who is not male or female. Well, they'll come up, and basically what it is is, and you can just tell, okay, you were born a woman, but you don't feel natural and normal being feminine, so you're a little more masculine. You've got a shaved head, you, you know... It's just, you're not a third gender. You are some variation of female looking and identifying more like a male. It's not a new thing. 
And that's very important for us to understand because, yes, and I'm going to finish with this, there are 101 different ways to be a good woman. Amelia Earhart is not Oprah Winfrey, who is not Julia Roberts, right? But, you know, none of them are doubtful as women. Same thing with men. There are 101 ways to be a good man. A ballet dancer professionally, Mikhail Baryshnikov, okay? Pretty masculine dude, even though he dances, right? We have John Wayne, pretty big, you know, tough man. We have Bill Gates, kind of like nerdy guy, you know? But we don't doubt any of their masculinity, right? And it's interesting that when we think about transgender individuals, okay, a transgender individual is one who they're born male and they say, I was assigned being male at birth, but they don't feel they are the male that they have been born. I I represent or I identify more as a woman, okay? You think about Bruce Jenner, that many in the gay community say, Bruce Jenner became Caitlyn, the Caitlyn that she always was. Okay, think about that. What I just said is being male is a cultural construct. We're only male because the community and the society says this is what a male looks like. But think about this. For the transgender person who is actually a female... Caitlyn Jenner or Bruce Jenner's femaleness is absolutely, positively, intrinsically before the foundation of the world who she is. Do you get what I'm saying there? It's no, she's not just falling for the cultural construct of womanhood. She, the, only the transgender person becoming the other gender is naturally, inherently female, although no other female is. They're just living in the trappings of what culture says. Same thing with the man. The other is, if there are a hundred genders, then why are transgender, think about that word trans, from here to there, it's not universal here to there to there to there. It's, and there's these, um, this shorthand that if you're going to describe a transgender person, it's either are you MTF or FTM. That's in the gay community. Male to female trans or, tr- or female to male trans. Binary, only two options. There's not MT something else. It's always the transfer just between the two. When you ask gender theory people why that is, if there's all these genders, how come we don't find people transing to all these different genders? How come it's always male and female? That's a very good question, they'll say. It really is remarkable, and I don't say this in a smart aleck kind of way, but when I write on this, when I speak about this, I, and there's so much more to say about the inconsistencies, but I'm going to finish with this, that our parents told us when we were little, it was very good advice, son, 
Daughter, if you are going to lie, you need to have a good memory. That wasn't advice to being a good liar. What they're saying is, if you are going to lie, your story is going to start contradicting itself, and you're going to have to remember all those different angles. Satan is lying on the gender issue, and the people who he's lying to cannot keep their story straight. There are so many glaring inconsistencies that they don't even seem to see. And we have to bring the truth in grace and truth to them and to our community and to learn these things and understand that this issue of gender matters because it is the representation of God in the world. And for God's dignity and his honor, we have to be able to contend for and defend what it is to be man and woman. Thank you very, very much.